Good to see you all here today. Wherever you come from, whoever you are, we're glad you are here. You're welcome uh, to worship, to belong here amongst us in this uh, space that we're gathered in this morning. If you've got a Bible, uh, please turn or a device, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to be reading 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verses 1 uh, to 18. If you've been joining us for a while, you'll know that we're working through a series, working through the book of 1 uh, Corinthians. Um, if you've got a Bible at the back at the table, out those back doors and you would like to keep that Bible, please keep that Bible. If you would like to take that Bible and give that Bible to somebody, please take it home with you. That Bible um, is yours. Uh, like I said, if you were with us last week and then we're in a series right now working through this book of 1 Corinthians and last week you'll remember uh, Jamie, he gave us some um, incredible insights into how we are to be a people who prioritize love over knowledge that we are to be a people who place uh, grace and kindness and patience with one another as of greater importance than being right over and against one another. We need to, yes, think rightly and to know truth, but not to the end of getting, getting puffed up and, and arrogant. Rather, we are t- if we truly know the knowledge of God's word, if we truly understand theology and our theology is correct, it will not lead to arrogance, but it will lead to love. It will lead to grace and kindness and patience and endurance. You see, love always entails some degree of inconvenience. Sometimes it, 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 it means a lot of inconvenience. There's maybe some girlfriends in here saying, yeah, a lot of inconvenience. And yet, when our love becomes real, when our commitment to another person or a group of people becomes tangible, the inconvenience of love, meaning maybe not every day and every way, but ultimately and surprisingly, the inconvenience of love becomes an incredible source of delight and joy within our lives. I believe that. Yes, sometimes relationships, for example, can be unhealthy and you got to get out of there, but broadly speaking, as an ethic for life, I believe that there is more joy in giving than receiving, that there is more lasting contentment in serving than being served, that there is a deeper and greater depth of intimacy and belonging experienced in, sh- in showing up rather than skipping out. And I know many of you here this morning believe this too. You believe it in how you foster and adopt children. You believe it in your commitment to your wife or your husband. You believe it in rallying around recently arrived refugees and immigrants into our city. You believe it in opening up your home to your small group even at the end of a long day. You believe there is more joy in giving than receiving when you show up early this morning to prepare this place of worship. You believe there is more lasting contentment in serving than being served when you help out in the kids' ministry even when children aren't particularly your favorite people. You believe this when you are saving up to buy for a home and yet you still choose to give. You believe there is a greater depth of intimacy and true belonging experience when you choose to stay. But you know what? I don't believe this every day. I don't believe it every minute. And likely you are the same. Often I think that the immediate path would be the better path. And maybe, maybe you're having one of those days right now, today, or maybe three weeks in, you're already having one of those years. You're asking, is the inconvenience of my commitment worth it? As a deacon, as an elder, as a small group leader, as a member of the setup team or the kids ministry, does my giving and my serving really make a difference worth the effort because I'm not feeling it right now? 
And you know what really makes it hard, and this is where today's passage becomes relevant, what really makes commitment and serving hard is when, you, when we go out of our way for the sake of something greater than our own immediate comfort, and in return, rather than being honored, we are misunderstood and mistreated. Church, that hurts. Or just part, that's discouraging. To be questioned and misunderstood for doing the very thing that you are tired of doing, but still doing because your pursuit of Jesus is what compels you to keep going. Did you get that? It's hard to be questioned and misunderstood for doing the very thing that you are tired of doing, but still doing because your pursuit of Jesus is what compels you to keep going. Church, it is my prayer this morning, if you have been compelled to give your life in pursuit of Jesus, come what may, wherever he leads you, and maybe that pursuit has grown cold or you have grown skeptical or discouraged, my prayer is today that in this gathering there will be a point of entry for the poor part of God to rekindle your fire. It is my prayer today is that this gathering will be a point of entry for the power of God in the gospel to rekindle your fire. I pray that this gathering every week and week after week and week after week will be a point of entry for the Spirit of God to freshly fall with power on your life. That is what our elder team is going to be praying for you. God has not forgotten you. He is not done with you. We gather this morning not for the sake of a service as an end to itself, but because all through Scripture, the people of God gathered is a lightning rod for the revelation of God's presence. And when we have been in God's presence, we leave with our faces shining. And when we have not, our faces grow dull, and our walk with the Lord grows dull, and our lives grow dull. But when the people of God are set on holy spirit fire, the world is changed. Lives are transformed. Addictions are broken. Lives are surrendered. Imaginations are stirred. Justice and righteousness is enacted. And God is glorified through lives that live in response to having been with him. I pray, church, and pray with me that as we gather that our very presence here this morning would be an invitation for the Holy Spirit to speak and to move and to rekindle and re- reawaken whatever this week or this past year or the past five years have snuffed out in your walk with the Lord. Even as we're going to see today, that means having to continue enduring whatever it is you're enduring. Paul says in our passage today that we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Church, let's pray together. If you've got hands this morning and you're comfortable doing so, would you raise your hands with me as we pray together? God, we invite you, God, into this space. God, we come here, God, and we claim this space as your people, God. We know that your Holy Spirit resides within us, God, so it resides amongst us this morning, God. So we invite you, God, to speak into our lives. God, I pray, God, that there will be an openness in our hearts, God, that there will be a humility in our hearts, God, to lay aside any thoughts in our minds, God, that are not of you, God, and we would surrender ourselves afresh today, God. Would you conjure those days in our lives, God, when we have met with you, God, and would you bring those days from the past into the future, into the present today, God. We invite you to speak into our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me read 
this week's passage with you. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 to 18. Verse 1 reads like this. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it, is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things among you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are, in, who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I will have a reward, but if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Amen. Paul opens this passage of scripture with a rhetorical question back in verse one. In fact, the majority of what I just read were rhetorical questions. And the first question is, am I not free? And in asking this question, Paul is using last week's passage, if you can remember, as a, as a launching pad. So as a reminder, last week, Jimmy helped us understand how the church in Corinth were coming up against some points of disagreement. Some Christians were happy to eat food that had been offered to idols. They believed that they had a right to eat that food, and some couldn't conceive of eating food that had been offered to idols. And given our context here in Rogers Park, your background or your story of origin will likely dictate how well you can relate to a situation like that where idols have, are become, have become a point of contention. But rather than initially focusing on who was right and who was wrong, Paul was calling those that were happy to eat the food that had been offered to idols to consider using their very sense of freedom the very sense of having a right to something as an opportunity to think about and care for those with an opposing view. Paul's call last week was to prioritize, as I've said, love and grace and kindness when engaging people that see things differently than we do, and to even withhold, this is hard, to withhold engaging in something we believe that we have every right to do in consideration of the impact and the feelings of others. Probably a whole lot easier said than done. 
So then this week, when Paul is asking the question in chapter 9, verse 1, am I not also free? He's pivoting the conversation and he's applying the principle that the, that the church in Corinth had used on themselves, that they had every right to eat this food, and applying, he applies this principle of freedom to his own life and his own situation. He's saying, if you have the right to eat food offered to idols, do I not also then have the right, have the freedom to make some judgment cause for myself? He says next, am I not an apostle? And this is only upping the intensity. He says, have I not seen Jesus our Lord? which is a reference to who the apostles were. The apostles were those who had directly seen the risen Christ and been sent by the risen Christ to teach and to lead the church. And this is where we begin to see that there's something more going on here. There are multiple threads that we got to tie together, and you'll have to track with me for a few minutes as we go through this. In in, in verse 2, Paul gives insight into why he truly is an apostle. And the proof he uses as an example is that their very existence, the existence of the church in Corinth, was an example of his role as an apostle. The proof of his apostleship being that the church in Corinth is a result. It would not have been there without his apostolic ministry. And so Paul isn't only setting himself up to point out an area which we're going to look at that demonstrates his rights as an apostle. He is also, or maybe he is first, he's defending his very authority as an apostle. In verse 2, when Paul refers to their existence as a church being due to his apostolic ministry, he's saying, hold on a minute, you, you know my story, you know the transformation that occurred in my life, you know the churches that I have planted, you know the authority in which I have preached and teached, and you know the respect that has been given to me by the early church. Then look at verse 3, which helps us understand a little bit more what's going on here. He writes, this is my defense to those who would examine me. The Greek word for examine here is referring to the kind of cross-examination that you would find in a a courtroom. For whatever reason, Paul's life has been placed under under a microscope by a segment of the church. They're they're questioning his, his behavior, they're questioning his decisions and his life choices, and their conclusion is that maybe he isn't really an apostle. He's, he's, he's maybe a, a bit of a, a fraud or he's maybe a bit of a fake and we therefore we can, we can kind of just discredit what he says and consequently strip him from the rights and the honor that is usually bestowed upon apostles. And there's something, there's some discussion in trying to build out the background to this passage, but very likely one of the reasons why Paul was being treated this way was due to his refusal to be financially dependent on money given to him by the church. And that sounds very odd and very, very strange. Why would Paul's authority, his apostleship, be called into question for refusing support, money, gifts from the church? Why would that, why would that be a big deal? If you can remember back a few months ago, we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and we, we noted that within the church in Corinth, there was this kind of air of, of prestige. The, the culture around them as to what was proper and what was uh, respectable had, had kind of infiltrated into the church. And so the church in Corinth was, was thinking very well of themselves. Paul says back in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8, you have become like kings. And this kingly way of life stood in stark contrast to the life that Paul was living. Two verses later, Paul writes, referring to himself and to other apostles, we are fools for Christ's sake. To this present hour, we hunger and we thirst, we are poorly dressed and we're homeless and we labor working with our hands. 
And particularly this idea of Paul as an apostle working with his hands was very difficult for the church in Corinth to, to reconcile. This was, it was just not how prominent and respected teachers and philosophers behaved. Remember, Paul was a, was a key figure in the early Christian faith. He was a representation of what Christians believed. He stood in comparison to the pantheon of other faiths and other belief systems, and many of the leaders of these other belief systems were prestigious, and they were wealthy, and would have flaunted their education, and flaunted their abilities, and then, where's our guy? Well, in Acts chapter 18, we read that Paul was in Corinth, or while he was in Corinth, he could have been found on any given day in Aquila's workshop. Out back, sanding wood, stretching canvases, and taking people's orders for new tents. I guess our modern equivalent would be the Apostle Paul was working at Dick's Sporting Goods. <laughs> Getting folks ready for camping season. We know Paul didn't always work another job on top of his ministry of teaching and preaching, but at the end of the day, was ever, what was going on in Corinth due to this humbling of himself, some within the church didn't only think this was demeaning to Paul, but it was demeaning as a reflection on them. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 7, in another letter that Paul wrote to the church in, Corinthian, in Corinth later, Paul directly asked them, did I commit a sin in humbling myself that you may be exalted because I preached the gospel to you for free? And so rather than thinking that Paul has chosen for good reason to forgo his rights as an apostle to be financially supported, those within the church have started circulating the rumor that Paul's behavior is so unbecoming, unbecoming of an apostle, he maybe isn't one. And so it seems that they've taken the offer of financially supporting him off the table. He's undeserving. He's beneath us. I guess he doesn't need it anymore. I think we'd better minimize our association with him. Rogers Park, this passage today isn't really about money. It's about being mistreated. It's about being misunderstood. It's about times when we feel the need to go and ask someone, did I commit a sin? Like, did, did, I, did I offend you? Are we good? I mean, I, I, know, I'm, I know I'm different. I know I, maybe you've made some different decisions in my life. I know I don't really maybe, maybe fit your box. Maybe I make you feel un, uncomfortable. But do I really deserve to be treated like this? Did, did I commit a sin? Have you ever felt that need or uh, wanted to ask somebody that? I know we're slightly on different pages, but this? And before we even get too comfortable putting ourselves in Paul's shoes today and relate ourselves to his mistreatment, we have to ask ourselves the harder question, in what ways are we not like Paul, but like the church in Corinth? Cross-examiners of the other, the different, the not like us. In what ways does the other make us feel uncomfortable? In what ways do we think the worst of those that we don't understand? In what ways do we feel threatened by not feeling so sure anymore if our way is the best way? 
one of the beautiful things about this neighborhood and this city and this surrounding area is that we've got it all, yeah? We've got it all. Whatever you can find in Chicago, you can find within three miles of where we sit this morning. I don't know if there's a Dick's Sporting Goods, but I'll need to check about that. Dewey. <laughs> but on top of that, on whatever you can find in Chicago, you can find here, on top of that, the global flavor of Rogers Park makes it uniquely distinct. You want a mosque? You want a gay bar? You want a college? You want a temple? You want a mansion? You want a golf course? You want a beach? You want food from anywhere in the world? And so the far north side of Chicago, whether Evanston or Skokie or Rogers Park, we converge all the time with different cultures and different perspectives and different ideas, like very few other places. The diversity of thought that exists to the degree that it does in Chicago, and especially Rogers Park, is incredible. That's why it's an incredible gift to, to center a church on Rogers Park. But to, to live around so many kinds of people, it isn't really normal in comparison to the vast majority of other places in the world. So we're not always prepared. <laughs> but what does this mean? It means nobody in this room is the same. Everyone in this room has an accent. Everyone in this room has an origin story that is distinct. Nearly all of us have crossed some border of some kind to get here. Rogers Park, we aren't in America right now. We aren't even in Chicago right now. We're in the church. This is no man's land. This is the king's land. And what determines our belonging in the land of the king is not our nationality or our ethnicity, but our allegiance to the king and his allegiance to us. And so if we see that and we celebrate that, the story that makes each of us unique will be the story that makes more and more and more room for more and more of us to take hold of the belonging that is ours in Christ in the church. What we don't know or what we don't understand or have not heard about another person is the gift that that person brings. And if you feel like most people in this room are just like you, like you, you are likely projecting yourself onto the room and you need to take another look at the room. Paul, in our passage this morning, was experiencing what it was like to be mistreated for not fitting in as a religious leader because he was working a job. Then in verse 3, Paul says, this is my defense. And what follows is not so much a defense of his apostleship. He has already reminded them of a few, point, a few points in that in verses 1 and 2. But rather for the next 10 verses, he argues that the door should not be closed in offering him or other apostles financial support. Paul goes on to here address a kind of a stinginess, a kind of critical spirit that is being revealed through their lack of open-handed generosity towards him. Verse 4, let me go down these quickly. Verse 4, he starts with the basics. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Hopefully they said yes. Verse 5, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do other apostles? Or is it only Barnabas and I that don't have the right to stop working a job if ministry, needs, or if ministry dictates that we need to? 
Here Paul, he's comparing himself to other apostles, reminding the church that they should not be treating him and Barnabas any differently. And it's interesting that it even acknowledges that it wasn't only the apostles that should be factored in, but also the apostles' families. Then he gives a, a lot of examples as to why this just makes sense. Verse 7, who serves as a soldier at his own expense, who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit, or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk. And then in verse 8, looking to the Old Testament, he reminds them that an ox working in a field is entitled to eat from the field while in the field. And all of Paul's arguments, and all in all, of Paul's argument, there is, there is a lot of them that are very, very much built on, on, on basically logic and common sense, what's simply typical, that, that people have the expected right to be sustained through the work that they spend the majority of their time doing. That's what Paul means in verse 11, if we have spent our time sowing spiritual things among you, is it too much to ask that we would reap material things from you? And maybe we've hit the point, but he's, he's going with even more examples, because we maybe have the point, but he's going to give us some more examples. In verse 13, he points out that even the surrounding pagan, pagan temples provide for those that maintain the religious ceremonies. And then he finally gets to the clincher, and really Paul should have pointed this out at the very beginning. And verse 14 reads like this, In the same way, the Lord, that is Jesus, commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. You just said that at the beginning. Jesus said so. And so, all in all, Paul is saying, don't mess around with this. He's calling the church in Corinth to a posture of generosity, not a posture of stipulations. We'll give to this apostle, but we won't give to that apostle. Paul's like, no, don't be stingy. Don't be overly critical. You've seen what we're about. You've seen the fruit over the past number of years. You are that fruit. Don't withhold your generosity now. Money's, it's hard to talk about it, and it's only one of the aspects of this passage, but this is, this is all I'll say. In verse 14, when Jesus says, or when Jesus commands that it's people who should be financially supported by the church, we ask, we ask why? Why did Jesus say people? Because only people can proclaim the gospel. People proclaim the gospel. To give you one example, Maddie Hutchins, the, reasons, the reason that we want to get behind her and pay Maddie is not because her responsibility is to organize childcare on Sunday. Her responsibility is not to schedule others to serve with her. It's not so that we have a more peaceful gathering. And she knows this. Her responsibility is to proclaim the gospel to all 100 children registered and rotating through the kids' ministry week after week. And we say, go, Maddie. Run with that. Not right now. When you get back from maternity leave, run with that. Give your week to that. Give your time to that. We want Maddie to be able to lock in on that on any given Sunday. Did you hear that? On any given Sunday, there are 70 kids showing up while we are in here. They are out there hearing about Jesus, their hearts and their minds being shaped by the gospel. Paul knew, Jesus knew, when it comes to proclaiming the gospel, it's people. People proclaim the gospel. And when our elders allocate funds, it's through the lens of gospel proclamation, globally, locally, missional, Christiana Levide, Sabka Zahara, right here amongst us and our kids. 
How can we further the reach of gospel proclamation? That is the question. That is what was on Christ's heart. Finally, here's the funny thing about our passage. Paul passionately argues that the offer of financial support for him and the other apostles should be kept on the table. But look at verse 15. Even though he argues for the availability of it, he doesn't want it. And we ask, why? Paul, why are you so complicated? (laughs) If you hadn't went and gotten that job in the tent factory, none of this would have happened. You would have looked more prestigious. We would have been happy to support you, but no, you had to go mess everything up. People in our gossip like you, they think you're being foolish. They think your behavior reflects badly on them, and they are treating you with suspicion. And I don't know who they are for you. Maybe they don't understand and think you're foolish when they ask, why are you still married to him? Why are you still married to her? Or they don't understand why you're still single. Surely you can just marry anybody. They don't understand your generosity. They don't understand your orientation around justice issues. Maybe they don't understand why you're considering moving to another country or why you choose to commit to the city and to the neighborhood or why you're rethinking your career priorities for after college. Why are you being so complicated? The question asked for Paul today is why didn't he just do what was expected of him? In the latter part of verse 15, Paul answers in typically very Pauline strong words. He writes, because I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my grounds for boasting. And when Paul refers to boasting here, it's not with with negative connotations. Rather, he's saying he fully intends, as long as he is living, to live a life that he can look back on and say, I'm proud of that. He's saying he fully intends, as long as he is living, to live a life he can look back on and say, you know what? I'm proud of that. He explains this in verse 12, where Paul says, we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ, meaning Paul fully intends to be proud of a life spent intentionally breaking down and tearing away obstacles that stand in the way of people hearing about Jesus. In three, three weeks' time, once we're back here in Sullivan, after the anniversary service next week, be there, and then the winter celebration down at Moody Bible Institute, be there. After that, three weeks from now, we'll be back here and we'll learn exactly why working a job was so important to Paul. So you have to come back. But for this week, all you need to know is this. Paul knew it tore down a barrier that opened up a way for people that could not hear the gospel to hear it, to receive it. Paul just wants to get after, oh, you don't know about Jesus? What's in the way? What can I do? Oh, you, you can't get to church? You, you, do, you, do you need a ride? Or, 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 or don't, don't, don't you feel welcome when you, we come, you come to church? What can we do about that? Or you thought they, they didn't believe what they were singing. Well, what can we do about that? Or you, you think you don't belong here? What can we do about that? Or you thought the pastor, he, he talked too fast? What can I do about that? Paul's saying, let me do whatever it takes. 
Let us do whatever it takes so that when the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed, we have done everything we can to help people hear it and believe it. That's a good ambition, church. It's a good ambition. Paul goes on in verse 17 that although he fully intends to live a life he can be proud of, his conviction is so strong that there's such a deep sense of urgency that's within him that it's not conceivable to him that this urgency is something that he has consciously chosen for himself or is even something that he has has the option of ignoring that's within himself. And therefore, Paul doesn't know how he can even take any credit for it. That's what he means by a necessity, a compulsion. It's been laid upon me. Church, the power of God is not mustered from us, from our efforts, from our ideas, from our abilities, from our production, from our plans. It is not from us, but the grace of God does flow through us. And our indifference towards what God could do through us stands in the way of what he will do through us. Church Rogers Park, there is something outside of us that needs to get inside of us. And there is something that is already inside of us that we've allowed ourselves to become numb to or indifferent towards or unexpectant of. And Paul says, woe to us if we do not preach the gospel. Woe to us if we have no sense of gospel urgency. And it starts not with you on your own, but with us here together. Church, you know what quenches the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives or in the church? You know what quenches and dampens the Holy Spirit gospel proclaiming urgency that did not come from Paul but welled up from within Paul? You know what makes us lethargic? Our unbelief. Our unbelief. And you know where so much unbelief spawns from or why hard-hearted skepticism and crusts around our faith? Unbelief begins to faster when we've been questioned and we've been misunderstood and we've been hurt too many times in response to doing the very things that we've done because our pursuit of Jesus is what has compelled us and so we're, we are here, kind of here, sometimes here, but our hearts are hard. And to that, Paul says to himself, but he says to us, no, no, please, no. Corinth, you can mock me, you can misunderstand me, you can mistreat me, but I will not allow this Holy Spirit empowered gospel sense of urgency that God has implanted within me to grow weak, to be snuffed out with cynicism. I will endure the messy misunderstandings in the life of the church and I will endure for my reward. Paul closes with a final question. He asks, what then is my reward? If he isn't going to consider receiving his mistreatment as a reward, which wouldn't be a very good reward, and he isn't going to be getting paid as his reward, what is his reward? And I was asking myself this question as to myself, what is my reward? It's not very hard to relate to Paul in this passage as as, as a pastor. 
And I should say that I have nothing <laughs> to gripe about in this church. I have nothing to gripe about in Sabka Sahara. There has always been so much kindness and so much love shown towards me and my family, which I am grateful for. But I relate with you that sometimes we get tired, sometimes we get discouraged, sometimes we get hurt. Last night, okay, Phil, lock in, talking about family, very difficult. Last night, I asked Summer and Nora if I should, sh- should share this with you. And my two daughters, Summer and Nora, and they said, they said yes. They looked really happy. <laughs> so Nora, our, our six-year-old, just so you know, she gave her life to Christ very simply, very openly a couple of years ago, very tenderly. She has always had that kind of openness, tenderness to, to spiritual things, but Summer, our, our oldest, since she was old enough to talk, has had a lot of, of questions, a lot of, of doubts, frankly, and if you're a parent, you might relate to this, just kind of doubts that, that, that surprised us, and if you know Summer, you'll just think, you know, she is just such an incredible little angel, and she is, but it surprised us that she, she had no problem, like pretty much from as soon as she could talk, she, she had no problem believing in Santa, and she had no problem believing in the tooth fairy, but believing God was a little bit of a, believing, believing in God was a little bit of a stretch for Summer. And so for about four years, and you can imagine like a nightly routine, talking to her about God or the Bible or trying to pray with her was kind of awkward and she she looked uncomfortable and she looked like she just didn't believe it. And long story short, (laughs) praise God, in the last year, a few months ago, in one sense we don't really know what happened or what changed, but in a very genuine summer way and very sincerely asked that Jesus would forgive her for her sins and that Jesus would become her heavenly father and king. And in one sense, we don't know what changed, but then we do know what changed. It was the church. It was you. It was, it was Sabka Zahara. It was the Rogers Park network. I could, could name names. People who... who, who talk to her, people who explain things to her, people who were, were an example to her. And I tell you this story because in the life of the church, there are misunderstandings and there are hurts that can cause us to become kind of callous and kind of cold. And Paul says, no, 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 do not let that in. Why? Because he knew that there are also rewards that far outweigh the inconvenience. And the faith of our kids is not only Ruth and I's reward, it's your reward for your endurance, for your commitment. Verse 18, Paul asks, what then is my reward? He answers that in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge. Maddie's Maddie's doing that. Paul's saying, my reward for my commitment to the gospel is not my pay, but in my seeing the gospel being freely received. And if I had one application for this message this morning, it would be this. There are a lot of discussions that we can have as a church in regards to removing contextual obstacles in the way of helping people hear and receive the gospel. Lots of conversations, lots of deep conversations, complex conversations about culture and backgrounds. But one of the greatest obstacles in the church that we need to tear down is the obstacle of our absence. Your decisions in what you say to people 
how you treat people, how you serve people, how you listen to people and love people, and whether you choose to be here on a Sunday morning opens or closes the door to one of the clearest opportunities gifted to us in our week to sow seeds of the gospel with our words, to create gospel-infused culture with our attitudes, and our Sunday gathering is probably, arguably, the greatest opportunity that we have to embody as a witness to those watching, who those come in, the kind of people that God is at work creating us to be. And so church, when we aren't here, our absence is an obstacle. An obstacle to our reward, an obstacle to the gospel, and an obstacle that only each of us can remove with our presence. We're going to flow straight into the Lord's table this week to, to use this time as a, an intentional means of, of, of reflection as we do. During the Lord's table, we remember that we are a people who, who claim the incredible privilege of being welcomed into the family God that our sins are forgiven through faith alone in the finished work of Jesus on the cross on the cross he, he, he paid the price for our sins for our crimes so that we could be set free he died so that we may live and in the Lord's table in a moment when you come up for all those who are followers of Christ you'll come up and you'll take the bread which symbolizes Christ's body given for you and the cup it symbolizes Christ's blood shed for your sins there, there's no shame today if you want to hold back and you want to deal with something that's in your heart if you need to reconcile with a brother or a sister this morning but let's remember today if you do choose to come forward that the bread and the cup are more than just symbols this is not just another, another moment. The Lord's table is a time when there is a distinct revelation of God's presence amongst his people. The bread and the blood taken represent the reigning king in the room. That we are in his land. <laughs> that it's holy ground. So take this time to pour our, your heart to him because he is here. And his heart for you is love his plans for you are good the inconvenience is inconveniences in your life if we would endure lead to an imperishable irreplaceable reward and I don't know what your reward in this life will be for, for staying committed to your marriage or your ministry for staying committed to the church but this passage compels me to believe that there will be one. And so I ask you, in your waiting right now, as you pray, as you close your eyes, as you bow your head before the King of Kings, that you endure whatever it is you're enduring, and you come to the church, and you be a part of the church, believing that the church is the people of God, and the Spirit of God works through God's people. And so we should be a people of expectation for what He is going to do. Can we do that in our church? Let's bow our heads. Let's pray to our Heavenly Father. And then when you're ready, come on up to the front as you're ready.